0: Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the New Testament, from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12 and beginning in verse 18 and reading through verse 29. Once again, I invite you to turn there and to follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. As we continue our study on the doctrine of the church, we come today to one of the primary ways in which we serve the Lord, and that is by our worship. From the beginning of the biblical story, worship has played an integral role in the relationship between God and man. As early as chapter 4 of the book of Genesis, we come to the story of Cain and Abel. And we are told that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now seldom do we ask, why? Why did they make an offering to God, which is an act of worship? Well, the answer is found in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, where he says that God's creation was sufficient for all men to discern God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature. The Westminster Confession of Faith states, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good unto all and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. You see, since every individual is made in the image of God, that impression stamped upon us carries an inherent sense of what is right and what is wrong. But as we all know, it did not take long before humanity had devolved into a state of violence where the thought of man was evil continually. The Bible tells us that by the time of Noah, Noah stood alone in his generation in terms of his walking with God. He is described as being singularly righteous before the Lord. But for all the rest of humanity, Paul declares... That although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So Cain and Abel bring offerings to God as an act of worship, but we see from the beginning that one was acceptable to God while the other was not. Their offerings, while different, were not the issue. The Lord accepted grain offerings as well as offerings from the flock, as we learn later in the Old Testament. The issue had more to do with the attitude of the heart. Jesus points out this important facet of worship in his parable of the Pharisee and the publican, where the publican was the only one, the tax collector, was the only one to go home justified because he approached the Lord in all prayerful humility and with a clear understanding of his sinful condition, and he sought God's cleansing forgiveness while the Pharisee basked in his spiritual pride. Cain's issue was the condition of his heart, which revealed itself most clearly when he murdered his brother Abel. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. So from the earliest of times, we see that God expected mankind's worship. God expected that we would honor Him and offer gratitude to Him. The problem, however, was our pride. We found it hard to bend the knee to the one who made us. We found it much easier to bend the knee to the gods that we created, which amounts to worship of the self. Now when God called Abram, we do not always consider that God was saving him from the influence of a pagan culture. In Haran, where Abram and his extended family settled for close to 50 years because of his father Terah, there was a prominent temple there to the moon god, Sin. Now, we have no knowledge of Abram's worship habits before God called him to leave there to go to the land that God would show him. But we do know that the mythology of that part of the world in the second millennia B.C. was far removed from the worship that God expected from mankind. Which brings us then to the first scripture lesson for today. Now we read a portion of this text when we first began our study, for it is here that we have a sense of what God is about in terms of the church being a people under God who have been rescued from their bondage to sin and set aside to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The Hebrews, who are the recipients of God's gracious salvation, Have heard about this God with whom Moses has interacted. They have seen God's miraculous activities in terms of the plagues that befell Egypt. They have witnessed the mighty power of God in the parting of the Red Sea, providing a way of escape as well as God's vanquishing Pharaoh's army by means of that same Red Sea. God has provided these rescued descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with water and manna from heaven. But they have yet to witness the presence of the Lord settling upon Mount Sinai. But when they did, they were so terrified of what they saw and heard that they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And they were suddenly aware of the vast difference between the God who had saved them and all the gods that the rest of the world was choosing to follow. As we read a moment ago from the book of Hebrews, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. Now, it is little wonder then that God makes clear to His people that when it comes to worship, it must be directed solely to Him. His first command to these people is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. The object of our worship must always be God who has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. He is our Redeemer, our Creator, our Provider, our Strength, our All in All. To God and to God alone we owe our very being. And then to make things crystal clear to these Hebrews whom God has set apart, He declares to them, you shall not make for yourself a carved image Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In other words, do not make for yourself any idol like the rest of the world is in the habit of doing. Don't bow down before them or serve them in any way because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. There is not a single thing that you can make that will adequately represent me. I am who I am and I will reveal myself to you in ways that are beyond your comprehension. And to further underscore their comprehension of the holiness of God, the Lord commanded them, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is a God like no other. He expects that people will treat even His name with the same awe and reverence that is due to Him. And then finally He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first four commandments are focused on the worship of God. Now there are many who, when they hear these words may be quick to dismiss them, thinking that such practices are quite ancient and far removed from our experience until someone points out that the word worship is simply a contraction of the word worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H, "worthship," ship worth worth In other words, worship is something that people do when they ascribe some degree of worth to a variety of people, places, or things. The rich young ruler was blind to the fact that he worshipped his possessions more than he worshipped God. His possessions were worth more to him than his relationship with God, which is why he went away sorrowful, unwilling to part with them in order to have Christ. But how much worth do we ascribe to our possessions? Very few people realize how much worth they ascribe to their employment or to their family or to their health and safety or to their spouse or whatever else you might want to name until they are tested to give that up in favor of following Christ. And suddenly they come to realize that there is an idolatry there that they may not have even been fully aware of. The disciples walked away from their occupations in order to follow Christ. If your employer told you to stop talking about Christ or else be fired, to what would you ascribe the greater worth? Hindu and Islamic converts must frequently walk away from their families if they choose to be baptized. And to follow after Jesus. Would you risk losing your family for the sake of Christ? Christians in totalitarian countries must sometimes face the trial of death if they will not recant their faith. With the added knowledge that their entire family may suffer the same destiny if they will not recant. Do you consider your longevity as well as that of your family to be of greater worth than affirming that God alone is the one true God? I have known men whom God called to serve in ministry only to lose their spouses later because their wives said, I did not sign up for this. And those ministers have experienced the truth of Jesus' words. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. Worship involves our ascribing worth And whenever we ascribe worth to something to a greater degree than we ascribe it to God, that is idolatry. Now my fear is that to one degree or another, the average churchgoer has developed a view of God that is so diminished, so anemic, so powerless, that they no longer see the need to think about, much less worry about, the first four commandments of the Decalogue. And so much of what passes for worship these days never asks whether or not God is pleased with our worship, for the greater worth is ascribed to the worshiper and how the experience has made them feel. But the psalmist declares, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Does our worship cause us to tremble? When we catch a glimpse of the Lord high and lifted up, does it cause us to fall on our face before Him in humble repentance? When the Apostle John is given a vision of the heavenly throne in Revelation chapter 4, he sees the 24 elders prostrating themselves before God. And they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. On occasion, I have heard younger Christians who have been infected with the notion that Jesus is little more than a super-friendly genie in a bottle say, that they cannot wait to see Jesus at His second coming, because when they do, they will run to Him and embrace Him And I have had to correct them by saying, when we see Jesus, there will only be one posture that will make any sense to us in that moment. And it will be with our faces to the ground. So overwhelmed will we be by His holy majesty. J.I. Packer has written, Worship in the Bible is the due response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of their Creator. It is an honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to Him all the good gifts, all the knowledge of His greatness and graciousness that He has given. It involves praising Him for what He is, thanking Him for what He has done desiring Him to get Himself more glory by further acts of mercy, judgment, and power, and trusting Him with our concern for our own and others' future well-being. And this is why worship is so critical in the life of the church. When we gather for worship, we are engaged in a declaration of what is truly true. We're saying to the world that God alone is worthy to be praised. We're saying to the world that God alone is the one in whom salvation can be found. We are saying to the world that God alone is the foundation for every life well lived. And in saying that to the world, we're also saying it to ourselves. And we are reminded week in and week out that the worship of God should pervade our lives not only by our attendance in communal worship with the people of God on the Lord's Day, but by all that we do and all that we say. This is Paul's point when he writes to the Corinthians and says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's the answer to the first question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But more than declaring God's worth to the world and to ourselves, when we gather for worship, we are joining with all those who have gone before us and even now stand in His presence beholding Him face to face, declaring God's worthiness. The Apostle John is given the great privilege of seeing another vision of heavenly worship in Revelation chapter 7. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, And glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. When we come to worship, we join our voices with those who have already persevered to the end of their lives. When we come, to declare that God alone is worthy, and to sing our hymns, and to offer our words of praise, we are adding to the symphony of voices that are already music to God's ears. In our worship, we become participants in a heavenly chorus that never ceases to acknowledge all that God has done on our behalf. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is driving at when he calls attention to what has transpired between the assembly that first gathered at Mount Sinai and they begged Moses to protect their ears from the thunderous voice of God and what is now true in the aftermath of Christ's atonement and resurrection and ascension. And he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly, the ecclesia, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because of what Christ has done, the Old Testament regulations for drawing near to God through the blood of sacrificed animals has been obliterated, and the veil has been rent in two. And in so doing, Christ opened the way for us to gain entry into the very throne room of God's grace by means of Christ's shed blood, enabling us to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. This is what is behind Jesus' statement to the woman at the well. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Beloved, when we engage in worship, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands as a signal to the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. Those who are assembled before the throne are the church of which we are a part, not because of what we've done, but because God, by His grace alone, wooed us to Christ Jesus alone, that by faith alone in the Son's atoning work, we might be adopted into the family of God. We have been made a part of a kingdom that exists for His glory alone. Therefore, as the writer to the Hebrews says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Would you pray with me for a moment this morning?